When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington. Tonight, we're bringing you a CNN exclusive Brand new video you'll see right here for the very first time in just a few moments. It's really, I have to tell you, an incredible story. One that only CNN's Clarissa Ward can tell. Taking place during a rare ceasefire in Putin's brutal war. Giving two hours of cover for this dramatic scene. CNN crews shuttled by Ukrainian intelligence as Russia returned the body of an American. An American killed in Ukraine while fighting for Ukraine. His name was Joshua Jones. He was 24 years old, a U.S. Army veteran from Tennessee. He was killed in August while fighting Putin's forces alongside the Ukrainian military. Now, this handover happened after months of negotiations in a dangerous area known as no man's land. It's in the Zaporizhia region between Ukrainian-controlled Ukraine and Russian-controlled Ukraine. And Jones's body will now head back here to the United States to his family who have been longing for his remains to return to his final resting place, to home. Now, this rare moment of detente takes place during an incredibly tumultuous time in this war. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin led military training drills, which the Kremlin says include practice missile launches. And then Putin said this earlier today. Risk of conflict in the world as a whole, as well as at the regional level, remains very high. Risk of conflict in the world as a whole remains very high, Putin said. The risk for a new world war, according to Putin. And Russian officials are continuing to push the totally unfounded claims that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb. A dirty bomb is a a traditional explosive that can also contain radioactive material. Now, to be clear, we know of absolutely no evidence that Ukraine is developing or planning to use one of these weapons. And if the Russians did, they should turn it over to the United Nations. But Western and Ukrainian officials worry that this could be a false flag operation by the Kremlin, that Putin is just trying to distract from his own plans to use a nuclear device, though his ambassador to the UK denied that to CNN's Christiane Amanpour earlier today. Russia is not going to use nukes, so it is out of the question. But this is really important, what you've just told me, that Russia will not use nuclear weapons. Now, tomorrow, in a month, in a year, no matter what happens. I cannot say about next generation. In a conventional scenario, (laughs) are you saying that your country has pledged, your defense minister, not to use Uh nuclear weapons? Yes, yes, this is what I'm saying. Reassurances from the Russians, who also told the world there was no way they were going to invade Ukraine until, of course, the moment they invaded Ukraine. Now, if you're wondering why Russia could be inching closer to the unthinkable using a nuclear device, well, think about this. Russian President Vladimir Putin's brutal war has not gone according to plan. Ukraine did not fall, let alone within a few days. And this has all surprised the world. 
Even some of Ukraine's allies were surprised by Ukraine's resolve and now by Ukraine's counteroffensive that continues to take back the country. And Ukrainian forces are now set to make a big move to try to reclaim the strategically important city of Kherson. This was the first major city taken by the Russians and now one of the only ones still under the Kremlin's control. An advisor to Ukrainian President Zelensky is warning the, quote, heaviest of battles are still to come, while Russian-installed authorities in that part of the country are stepping up pressure on residents to leave. This comes after Ukraine already reclaimed territory in the Kharkiv region. The Kremlin PR machine tried to spin the troop exit as a regrouping. In reality, that's called losing. You could also call it hell, as officials discovered that the Russian army left behind evidence of at least 22 suspected torture chambers and bodies of more than 500 civilians. And CNN has been there to document the brutality. So this here is where the first strike hit. And then you can see the second one just smashed in to the top of that building. CNN was there even moments before the bombs fell in Kherson. It's not safe, he screamed. We have to get out of here as fast as we have to get out of here as fast as possible because the Russians might target this position. And herein lies the paradox of Putin losing. Western leaders want Putin to fail, but the more he fails, the more desperate he becomes. That so far has led to an influx of brutal attacks against innocent Ukrainian civilians and increased attacks on critical infrastructure aimed at taking out power and water, things needed to live. One of the latest such attacks in the eastern Ukrainian city of Dnipro, where a gas station caught on fire after a Russian missile attack overnight. And local officials say two people were killed, the car wash operator and a pregnant woman who was trapped in her car and burned alive. In a different example of Putin's desperation, he's turning to another brutal regime for help. Today, Ukrainian President Zelensky claimed that Russia has used 400 Iranian drones to specifically attack Ukrainian civilians, escalating attacks on innocents, innocents who have been targeted by Putin and his army since this war began. All of that is what's fueling these fears that a nuclear option is not off the table. Considering Russia's despicable, inhumane actions against Ukrainian people, it's hard to imagine any form of civility between the two sides. But this war has seen at least some brief moments of cooperation when it comes to prisoner exchanges. Two American veterans fighting in Ukraine who were captured in June were released last month, part of a prisoner swap, partly brokered by Saudi Arabia. They were recently reunited with their families back here in the United States. I mean, there, there, were, <clears throat> there were a lot of beatings. Um, there was a lot of physical torture, um, but I, I think some of the worst stuff there was, um, there was a lot of psychological torture. I just remember it being prolonged, suffering prolonged pain. Uh, me personally, I just remember wanting to die, actually. Just, I wanted it to end. And the story of those two Americans who bravely tried to help the Ukrainian people brings us back to the story of Joshua Jones, the fallen American whose body is now in Ukrainian custody. In just a few minutes, Joshua's mother will join us for her first live interview since this news broke. 
Let's start with CNN's Clarissa Ward, who witnessed the handoff of Joshua Jones' remains today. Uh, Clarissa, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's uh, obviously been months since uh, Joshua was killed. When you started the day, did you think this exchange was going to happen? Honestly, Jake, I really wasn't sure that it would happen. There were so many different components that had to come together. It was such a narrow window of time that both sides had agreed to stop hostilities just two hours. And during that time, you know, we had to get right to that no man's land area. They had to get the ambulance ready, move forward to the transfer just a lot of moving parts. And because there have been these sporadic attacks in the past from the Russian side, particularly on civilian convoys, for example, trying to escape through the checkpoint in Zaporizhia, which is very close to where we uh, witnessed this sort of handover earlier today, it just seemed like there were so many different things that could go wrong. And I think all of us in the team didn't want to get our hopes up Uh, too much that it would actually come off. Yeah, I certainly understand that. Given where things stand right now with Russia's war against Ukraine, what do you make of the timing of this exchange? It seems extraordinary. It is extraordinary in the sense that the war is just grinding into such a grim chapter now, where I think for Russia, in the face of humiliation, the gloves have really come off. And it's just laid bare, Civilians are the target. Civilian infrastructure is the target. Let's make sure that people in Ukraine can't really survive this next winter, that they are forced to flee their homes, that they will not have electricity, that they will not have heating. At the same time, though, there seems to be this sort of pragmatic recognition that has set in on both sides that this war isn't going to end anytime in the very near future and that therefore there do need to be some areas where they can come together and come up with deals. And we have seen, I'd say in the last few weeks really, a number of prisoner swaps, some of them really large in scale and uh, some of them with foreign nationals, all of them incredibly sensitive, incredibly difficult to pull off. And so it does seem that there is some willingness on both sides to try to make this work. And after today's, uh, where the remains of Joshua Jones were successfully moved back into Ukrainian territory and can now begin their journey to his family in Tennessee, I think there's hope that this could continue and we could see at least more cooperation in this one very narrow sphere, Jake. All right, Clarissa, stick around because we're going to show our viewers the powerful moment and your story about Joshua Jones uh, remains when they were handed over. And later I'm going to speak live with Joshua Jones's mom on this important and somber day. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I'm back now with our chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. She was there for the handoff of the remains of American veteran Joshua Jones in Ukraine today. An exclusive new video, Clarissa documents the return of the Tennessee native who was killed in Ukraine back in August. On the front lines in Ukraine, he was known to his fellow fighters as Tactical Jesus on account of his long hair and deep knowledge of the Bible. To his mom, he was simply Joshi. Tennessee native Joshua Jones was just 24 years old 
when he was killed fighting in eastern Ukraine back in August. His passport and Ukrainian military ID showed up on Russian social media channels soon after, but his body was never recovered. Since then, Ukrainian lawmakers Alexander Truchin and Alexander Kovalyov have worked tirelessly to get his body back. And today, it is finally happening. Why is it important to you to recover the body of Joshua Jones? He's the same one hero for me, like our soldiers. So we should make everything possible to give his body back to his family. We are driving to the front line in Zaporizhia. We stop along the way to link up with military intelligence. In another car, a Russian soldier sits slumped over. He is being released today as part of a larger swap in which 10 Ukrainians were already freed. The lawmakers talk with the officers to go over the plan once more. A makeshift white flag is put together for the moment of transfer. And we're off again. This time to no man's land. A rare two-hour ceasefire has been agreed by both sides, and time is of the essence. So we've just arrived at the meeting point. They're waiting now for the Russians to arrive with the body. A team of forensic investigators get ready for the task ahead. This is as far as we are allowed to go. The actual handover will happen just beyond the hill. Waiting for their return, it is eerily quiet. Only the bravest dare come out in these parts. One of the transfer team captures the moment Joshua Jones' body is brought back into Ukrainian territory as Russian forces look on. For Kovalyov and Truchin, it's the moment they have been waiting for. Jones is now one step closer to being returned to his family. Back in the car, they show us his personal effects. Uh, this is his personal body cross, uh, which, uh, which he was wearing. He was a very religious guy. What's your feeling in this moment? You've been working towards this for a long time to try to get Joshua Jones back to his family. Our feeling, we are proud of our country, of our team. We are proud of the president. And we are proud that uh, we are saving lives uh, because, you know, when even somebody is dying, his family continue to live. And they cannot live normally if they know that they don't have a place where to come for their son. Thanks to their efforts, Joshua's mother, Misty Gossett, in Tennessee, will soon have the chance to say goodbye to her son. Joshua was... He was a soldier. He was a born soldier. He was named after the Battle of Jericho, and he proved he lived up to his name so valiantly. And I feel like the weight of the world has been lifted off of me. A name and a life that will be remembered even half a world away. Jake, at least five Americans have been killed fighting here in Ukraine. And those two lawmakers who we spent the day with said that there are at least two Americans who are still alive. 
who are being held by Russian forces, they very much hope that what you saw today could be a prelude to negotiating their release and also the release of many of the other nationalities who have come to Ukraine to join the Ukrainian Foreign Legion to participate and play a role in this war, Jake. Clarissa, first of all, just extraordinary um, and impactful and and emotional journalism. Um, So thank you for bringing it to us. Uh, take me back to the moment where you, where you first saw Joshua's body being brought into Ukrainian territory during this rare two-hour-long ceasefire. How tense was it? It was very tense, Jake. It was tense from the moment we arrived. The military intelligence people who we were with were quite nervous. They were concerned about our presence just because the situation on the ground was so tenuous and nobody, I think, was really convinced that this two-hour ceasefire was going to hold and everybody was very concerned uh, that the timings were very precise. And in fact, by the way, uh, the ceasefire ended at 3 and at 3.10 the air raid sirens started going off once again. Um, So I think there was a lot of concern about the fact that there were so many moving parts, so many things that could go wrong. And the fact that you had us as journalists along obviously added a different sort of layer of responsibility for them. So it was definitely tense. But then there was that moment of relief when they were able to put the body into the ambulance and then quickly ushered us in the car to get out of no man's land as soon as possible. All right, Clarissa Ward in Ukraine, thank you so much. And the mother of Joshua Jones will join us when we come back. It will be her first interview since since she learned her son's body finally will be coming home to her. What emotions could she possibly be feeling today? What does she want the world to know about Joshua? We'll talk to her next. For two long months, the parents of Joshua Jones have had to live with an unimaginable pain, the loss of their 24-year-old son, and a fear that they might never get his remains back from Russian soldiers who are currently attacking Ukraine. But tonight, Joshua Jones is finally on his way home to his final resting place. Joining us now to discuss is his mother, Misty Gossett. Misty, let me start by just saying my deepest condolences. I know everybody watching is sending you love and prayers um, and support. Um, I want to ask you about the moment you first learned uh, that the Ukrainians had finally been able to negotiate to get your son back. What, what, what was that like for you? Because that, that was earlier today or, or last night, right? <laughs> it was this morning um, around 7 o'clock. And um, <laughs> once a week, um, Angie, that's been helping me with everything, we spent one night a week um, staying up late, making the contacts to Russia, Ukraine, every contact we could find. Um, and so I went to bed at like four o'clock this morning and at seven o'clock, my husband is telling me they have him. And I don't know if it, I just, if I didn't believe it, it didn't hit me until around two o'clock today. I want to read part of a post uh, that you wrote a couple days ago about the the pain you've been through. You said, quote, nothing on this earth will satisfy my maternal desire to hold my son in my arms and knowing it'll never be possible kills me inside. The intense desire to see and speak to him is all consuming. 
not only mentally, but emotionally as well, unquote. So when, when you look back on the last conversation you had with Joshua, what, what was that like? What, what, what was that conversation about? It was, um, it was a fun conversation. He had sent me a picture. Um, it was three days before he died and sent me a picture with his long beard and his long ponytail. And I said, uh, apparently there's no barber shops open. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, I said, wow, look at the bread in that beard. And, um, his whole life, he's looked like his dad, but I saw Mama in that red beard. And um, he's like, I look good, don't I? I was like, you look great. <laughs> he was such a handsome he, man. He loved must, it. He uh, loved uh, it. The beard must have frustrated you as a mom just because he had such a handsome face. Right. Um, not a big fan of facial hair personally, <laughs> um, but apparently there wasn't a barber shop handy on the front line. So uh, that's where we went with the conversation. <laughs> wow. And it's nice that it was a happy conversation. So Joshua first left for Ukraine on March 30th, just a day before he turned 24, just weeks after Putin ordered this invasion. What was his reasoning? Why, why did he want to go to Ukraine? Why did he want to go fight? <sighs> he said that he had to. Of course, as his mom, I said, no, you don't, um, adamantly. And he said he had to. He said, no one else is helping, and I'm good at this shit, Mom. I'm going to do it. And he was a veteran. Where did, where did he serve? And he did. He, um, he was in the um, Army, the United States Army. Um, he was um, out of Fort Benning, immediately stationed to... Hawaii. Um, he did some um, different training in Thailand and in, was it South Korea or North Korea that they had the Olympics? One of them. Um, he was South there Korea. for that. Um, yes. Uh, as they were preparing for the Olympics, um, he, he loved, he loved every bit of it. He loved the he loved everything except being told what to do and except a duty station time. Um, but he loved the infantry. He loved to fight, and he was apparently very good at it. His fellow fighters in Ukraine, as you heard in Clarissa's piece, often refer to him as tactical Jesus, Jesus because of the, the beard and the long hair, but also because of his devout faith. Um, some uh, soldiers have even taken to, yes. to wearing a patch uh, with Joshua's uh, image on it. When you hear how beloved he was by his comrades and, and how he's seen by Ukrainians as a hero, just as much as any Ukrainian soldier, what goes through your mind? Just, just proud. Um, they have uh, shared um, the, the stencils and the patches. They're stenciling everything that they take over. Um, from Russian territory with that stencil from my kid. And um, his faith was amazing. And, and he, he preached without preaching. Um, you know, a lot of times they say that it, you know, it's, 
it's not what you do in public. It's what you do in private. I mean, his actions showed who he was. Um, as parents, as dad and I, you know, we were hard on him. And, but we raised him to be who he was, who he is. And uh, he was strong. He was resilient. He was hilarious. Um, I've gotten hundreds of messages of, of soldiers that were in trenches with him, that they were in the worst of times with shelling around them and weather issues. And Joshua made light of it. He made them sing Abba. Um, he, he could make the worst situation better. Naturally. He sounds like an extraordinary young man and, of course, a hero. Thank you so much, Misty Gossett, for talking to us about your very special son. We'll be right back. Crime is now central to the closing message for Republicans in this midterm cycle. Nationally, the GOP has portrayed the city of angels as nothing less than a hellscape. Every day there are stabbings, rapes, murders, and violent assaults of every kind imaginable. We talked about the rising crime rates nationally, but in, in California, uh, specifically in L.A. This is, you know, literally what, what I would call woke justice, mm. and I'm tired of it and people are tired well, of it. Hyperbolic, alarmist, perhaps, but crime and homelessness are real problems in Los Angeles. Homicide there is up almost 17% from two years ago. Robberies are up almost 16%. The number of people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles also increased in the same period. Congresswoman Karen Bass wants to be the next mayor of Los Angeles. She's a Democrat. She's in the middle of a tight runoff with developer Rick Caruso. And Congresswoman Bass joins us now. Congresswoman, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Why have things gotten worse? Why is crime and homelessness worse in Los Angeles now? Well, let, let me just tell you, homelessness really exploded a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic and certainly through the pandemic. But you know what? I just don't even imagine, I can't even imagine what L.A. would have been like if we did not have the American Rescue Plan. So all of the resources around COVID allowed us to do an experiment that I hope that we keep which is doing master leasing of motels and hotels where you lease out all of the rooms and you put people who were on the streets in the uh, hotels and motels. We've been able to get thousands of people off the streets and this needs to be expanded tremendously. What is the percentage of individuals who are on the streets because they were evicted, they lost their jobs versus those who are battling um, emotional, psychological, mental issues. Is there any breakdown that well, we know it, of? Yeah, yeah, there is a breakdown. I think that if you uh, include substance abuse and mental illness, you're talking about 40% of the population. But Jake, one thing that is really sad is there are people in tents who actually work full time. They just can't afford the rent because L.A. over the last few years has become extremely uh, unaffordable. And in terms of evictions, that was something that was certainly a big issue before the pandemic. 
We knew it took place during the pandemic, even though there was an eviction moratorium. So I'm actually worried that homelessness is going to spike again at the end of the first quarter of next year because the eviction moratorium will go away and some of the resources that were for COVID will go away. So we're going to need to appeal to the state that has a $100 billion, $100 billion surplus to extend the contract so people can stay in the hotels and motels for several more months. I want to get to crime in a second, but I read a, a, a really good column by Ezra Klein in the New York Times. Uh, the column is called The Way Los Angeles is Trying to Solve Homelessness is Absolutely Insane. That's the title of it. That's not me. Uh, in it, Ron Galperin, the L.A. City controller, is quoted saying, let's stop making perfect the enemy of the good or good enough. When, and, and his, his basic yes. argument is when you're trying to get people off the streets, you need to make sure that the focus is on putting a roof over their heads as quickly as possible with micro units, shared units, dorm-style units, shared kitchens, shelter beds, interim housing. Galperin says these aren't perfect approaches, but with so many people dying every day, there has to be a sense of urgency. The problem seems to be that communities and activists for the homeless don't want those solutions. Can you explain why? Yes, well, first of all, I couldn't agree with him more. We need to have all of the the above uh, solutions. So we need to get people off the streets immediately. But Jake, you also have to address why they were on the streets. If you don't deal with the substance abuse and mental illness, they'll be right back on. And so you have temporary housing, but you also have permanent supportive housing. I did a, uh, a press conference yesterday with carpenters on a vacant lot that is owned by the city. And they can build housing there in the matter of months, and it's significantly cheaper. So there are solutions. But what Galperin was talking about is that when we passed propositions, we loaded everything in, everything that we wanted to see. That's the perfect, and we can't do that anymore. We need to get people off these streets as soon as possible. You know, three or four of them die on the streets every single day. It is a humanitarian crisis in Los Angeles. So on the, on the crime uh, issue, you and your opponent both have resisted calls mm-hmm. to cut the LAPD's nearly $3 billion budget. You've both pushed for more gang intervention workers, sending mm-hmm. unarmed professionals to, call, uh, to calls involving mentally ill people instead of sending police. You both want to hire hundreds more police officers. So how would you be different? Well, uh, we actually are significantly different because uh, I believe that in certain neighborhoods that want to see an increased police presence, you can get officers off of desk duty and have them on the streets. At the same time, we do need to hire because we've had a number of officers retire. But I call for a very serious investment in crime prevention and intervention strategies. My opponent calls for hiring 1,500 police officers and makes a commitment to do that when he knows that we can't even fill a class now. If we were to hire 1,500 police officers, the city would go bankrupt. So what he is proposing are are programs and examples of things that he absolutely knows are not achievable. And I think that's disingenuous. And it's just a way of conning people. And I don't think that's the right thing to do right now when the city is in a crisis at all. All right, Congresswoman Karen Bass, thank you so much. Good to see you again. And our invitation to Mr. Caruso to talk about these same issues on the same program uh, is being made right now. Please join us. We'd love to have you. Our election countdown continues with the high-stakes Senate showdown in Pennsylvania. Did Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's team make the right call, putting him out there last night to verbally duel with Dr. Mehmet Oz while Fetterman is still going through a difficult recovery from a stroke? Did Oz do damage to his campaign with his controversial answer 
on a question about abortion rights. We're going to talk about the debate next. That's Pennsylvania Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman addressing the fallout and concerns about his performance during the first and only debate in his U.S. Senate race against Republican candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz. You'll recall that Lieutenant Governor Fetterman suffered a stroke on May 13th, just a few days before the primary. Since then, some of his health struggles have been on full display on the campaign trail at times. The candidate has jumbled words. He's avoided taking questions from reporters sometimes. Last night's debate... Fetterman stressed that he is on the road to recovery. Viewers still noticed some lapses in his speech. I do support fracking, and I don't, I don't, I support fracking, and I stand, and I do support fracking. I do not believe in supporting the uh, Supreme Court. Join me now to discuss CNN medical analyst and a professor of medicine and surgery at George Washington University, cardiologist Dr. Jonathan Reiner, so uh, Dr. Reiner, what's going on with with, uh, John Fetterman's health? You said you think this is more than just an issue with auditory processing, which is what some reporters in the campaign seem to be suggesting, that he's just, he hears the words, but he's just having trouble computing what they mean. It takes him a couple seconds. You say he also has expressive aphasia. What is that? Yeah, so uh, he's had an injury to his brain in the uh, area that helps someone process speech. So... Most people have thought that Mr. Fetterman's uh, injury was how he processed how he processed sound, which is why they gave him uh, the the prompter. But what was really apparent last night was that he has expressive aphasia. It's a really common injury in people who've had a stroke. It's estimated about thirty percent of people who survive a stroke will have some difficulty with speech. But the particular problem that Mr. Fetterman has is expressive aphasia from an injury to a part of the brain, in most people on the left side, towards the front of the brain in the temporal lobe, uh, probably called Broca's area. Mm-hmm. And people with expressive aphasia have difficulty putting together complex sentences. They have difficulty processing spoken word in complex uh, sentences. So what's the prognosis? I mean, does it get better? Can it get better? Uh, it can get better. It takes a lot it takes a lot of uh, speech therapy, a lot of work. Uh, I take care of, of people like Mr. Fetterman who have had atrial fibrillation, which is where we think his stroke came from, where, how it originated. Uh, and I admire his courage to go on that debate last night. He had to know that he was facing basically a, a fast-talking TV doctor who at times seemed to be talking almost intentionally faster in the face of Mr. Uh, Fetterman's difficulty speaking. Almost, sometimes it appeared almost cruelly faster. Uh, he had to know that he would uh, get the kind of uh, reception that, that he got from that. Um, and you know, being the son of a man who had atrial fibrillation and had a stroke, 
I know how much work it takes to, to recover, and I admire Mr. Fetterman's uh, determination to do that. But he's obviously had a, a pretty significant neurologic injury. Do you think that, um, like, in a year from now, uh, this will all be in the rearview mirror if he does the, the work he needs to do? You know, it, it's hard to know. And, and part of the problem is that, you know, the campaign was opaque at the very beginning. They didn't really disclose the degree of his illness. We don't really know how sick he was. If we, in fact, his treating physicians were never made available to, to the press or the public. So we don't really know how much Mr. Fetterman has actually recovered. It might in be- fact, at the debate, he was asked if he would release his medical records, and he, he basically said no. So, you know, he might have had a massive event, and if, you know, people who had seen him originally might now say, oh, my God, he looks remarkably better, and, and I bet he does. But not knowing how far he's come, it's very difficult to know how far he can go. And, and it, would be, it would be good for the people who care for him to be made available to the press. There is no sin in having a stroke. There's a lot of, of, of honor in the dogged determination that it takes to recover, and I, I admire that. What I don't admire is the way sort of the campaign has handled the disclosure of his illness. You think they should have been more upfront and transparent about it? Absolutely. So um, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman is spending a lot of time talking about a different moment in the debate, not... Um, not his uh, struggles, um, but a comment that Dr. Oz made uh, about when he talked about who should be behind a decision about whether or not a woman should be able to terminate a, a pregnancy. Um, let's watch. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult t- conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Well, I saw you tweeted about that. What's your, what are your thoughts? I mean, he says he thinks the decisions should be between women, doctors, and local political leaders. Yeah, so the only people in the room with me when I'm talking to a patient about their treatment plan or their prognosis is the patient and their family. And, you know, there's no role for local political leaders in the decision relating to a a woman's reproductive health. Uh, No physician believes that these kinds of very personal, life-changing decisions should be filtered through the lens of a local political official. That's just pandering to uh, his base. All right, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, it's always good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. We'll be right back. I flew to New Hampshire this morning, or I tried to fly to New Hampshire this morning to speak at a memorial service at my alma mater. Weather delays prevented me from getting there in time, so if you will generously permit me a moment now to say goodbye to a mentor and an old Marine. Jim Wright, my first history professor and the former president of Dartmouth College. Professor Wright became my history professor in March 1988, and he never stopped being my professor. The class was, if memory serves, History II, History of the American West, and it was a joy, and it set me on a course to become a history major, and history became a lifelong passion. And Professor Wright, President Wright, Jim, was along with me the whole time, guiding me, encouraging me, sending me cheers and compliments and articles he's written and books. Jim Wright was a Marine veteran. He was a lover of students and teachers and democracy and his family and Dartmouth College. 
He was an intellect and never an elitist. He was a friend to us all. He taught me history. He taught me reverence for service. He taught me empathy for veterans and their wounds. He taught me friendship and he taught me fellowship. And I will miss him deeply. In Judaism, mourners say the Kaddish. Those are Translated from the Aramaic, the words are a litany of praise for God at a time when, when maybe mourners don't want to offer praise. One interpretation of why we do this is because of the belief that the only true comfort in the loss of someone so special can be achieved in viewing the death as part of a, of a whole that we, that we cannot fathom. And while academics like Jim and journalists like me require proof and evidence, we can all acknowledge that we do not know that that theory is wrong. Perhaps it's fantastical, perhaps it's an illusion, but perhaps it's right. We can only know what a special soul James Wright was and wonder if perhaps there was something so remarkable about the glint in his eye and the acceptance of his smile and the gravitas of his baritone that perhaps if there was something we cannot comprehend that gifted him to us, Maybe there's also something we cannot comprehend that, that took him from us as well. Goodbye, John. Semper Fi. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with barcodes. And Allison Camerata. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.